0: So imagine this, imagine there was a, uh, some kind of a tribe somewhere, uh, an, an unreached tribe, not really affected by Western society, not aware of current technology. And this tribe, man, they just struggle with all of the things that you would think, disease, um, lack of food, and, and so many of these problems could be solved if they had the technology, right? So you go in and you find your way through the, the jungle or whatever, and you get to these guys and, and you give them everything that they need to be able to to eradicate all of the issues that they have. You give them a a, a smartphone that literally has instructions for everything that they would need, how to build a well, how to get fresh water, um, how to produce more food. Um, You even give them a generator and give them the gasoline to run the generator in order to to, to produce electricity to support all the, the things that they need. You give them everything that they need, and then you leave. And then you come back a few months later and you say, and nothing's changed. In fact, if anything, things have gotten worse. And you say, "What did you guys do with everything that I gave you to fix your problems?" And you look over and you see that the smartphone you gave them—they're using it as a water coaster, you know. And then you, you and you and you say, "Well, why aren't you using this, the smartphone? Why aren't you using the computer?" And I get, "Well, it, it ran out of battery." Well, why didn't you plug it in? Well, the generator—you know—it it, doesn't—it doesn't run. Well, did you put the gas in the generator? Well, no, we didn't put the gas in the generator. Well, what did you do? Well, we did what we used to do, you know, we, we, we thought, well, this generator's not working, so let's take the gas and let's start a fire and make a sacrifice, and maybe the, the gods will allow this generator to work and will begin to produce electricity for us, and, and, and that didn't work, so we said, you know, forget the generator, forget this, let's just go back to the way things were, let's, let's continue to go on the way things were. Now, how frustrating would that be for you? You gave these guys everything that they needed to be successful. You gave them all of the truth, and not only just the knowledge, but you gave them the power to do it, and they never plugged the darn thing in. Like, how frustrating would that be? Now, uh, hopefully you're in Galatians, because this does tie in. Uh, I'm not just making up a random story for fun. Um, In Galatians 1, listen to what Paul says to these guys. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm astonished. He's writing a letter these guys. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed He says it again, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, this is interesting because Paul is having this exact same reaction. He came to these guys in paganism, struggling with their own sin and their own inability to to fix themselves. a slave to the law of Judaism, many of them, and Paul comes in with the gospel, which is the power of God to save and transform. And at first they received it, but then when a few months go on, they begin to use it like, a, like a, a coaster for a cup. They begin to go back to the law. They begin to go back to what they knew. They begin to default back to the religion that they went to before. And Paul is writing a letter to them, just pulling his hair out, thinking, why I gave you the gospel and you treated it like it was nothing. In fact, even worse, you tried to uh, to, to use my example, the silly example that I use. You, you didn't just um, put the gasoline in the in the, the generator. You actually tried to use um, the old way you used to think to start the generator. You used the law to try to accomplish the gospel. You used the works that weren't working before to try to make the gospel work, and it simply didn't work. And he's frustrated. Now interestingly enough, and the reason I have you go to Galatians is this section of scripture, if you go back to Acts 13 now, uh, we're going through the book of Acts, by the way, for those of you that are joining us, and uh, this section of scripture that we're going to look at is actually Paul the first time preaching the gospel to the Galatians, So these people, if you've ever read the book of Galatians, um, which I would encourage you to, if you've ever read the book of Galatians, this section of scripture is actually when the gospel was first preached to these guys. And the letter was written some months later when Paul is immediately frustrated that the message that he gave them was not being employed, it was not being believed. So it's kind of an interesting uh, connection here. And what I love about this Acts chapter 13, this passage, and we're going to look at a lot of verses, um, what I love about this passage is it's really Paul's only sermon. The Apostle Paul, who becomes kind of the star of the book of Acts at this point, that's been Peter up until this point, and now Paul in his first missionary journey, he opens the scriptures, as we'll see, and he begins to declare the gospel to the people in Galatia. Um, And it's really other than, you know, we see him uh, engaging the uh, Mars Hill and we see him giving a defense in court, but really this is the only time that Paul actually preaches a sermon. So it's really interesting and it's interesting that it's to the people that he would later write to in Galatians. So this morning what I want to ask is, and, and hopefully this will dovetail in with last week's sermon, last week we talked about false gospels. Okay, last week we talked about the fact that there are contrary gospels, and we saw that in the beginning of chapter 13 when, when Paul and Barnabas come onto the island of Cyprus, and they, they begin to preach the gospel to this, um, this um, I can't remember his name, what did we call him? It was, it was Bill, because his name was so hard to remember. Um, it doesn't matter. It was this, he was the, the, the leader of the island um, of uh, Cyprus, and he, he essentially is asking for them to come preach the gospel, and there's this other man there producing a counterfeit gospel, so we talked about counterfeit gospels. We talked about the fact that when you preach the gospel to somebody, you're not speaking it into a vacuum. You're speaking it into a crowded, uh, a crowded area where lots of other false gospels are coming in. And we have to realize that. The world is pumping out false gospels. And this is exactly what Paul says to the Galatians. He says, you've believed another gospel. Not that there is another true gospel, but you've believed another false gospel. So last week, we spent time in our circles discussing um, what false gospels are and how many different ones there are and how we are to identify them. Um, And this morning, what we're going to do is kind of a part two to that teaching is we're going to really try to answer the question, well, if those are counter gospels, counterfeit gospels, what is the true gospel? And you guys probably hear me use that word like 50 times in a sermon, And I just want to make sure this morning that we all understand exactly what we mean when we say the gospel. If we last week we spent time understanding what the gospel isn't, let's spend some time this morning from Paul's sermon coming at it from the approach of what is the gospel? What is the gospel? What can we learn from Paul's message that he gave to these Galatians? And also, what can we learn from his approach? Okay, what can we learn from the way that he went about sharing that truth um, to those? So there's really three points in this sermon uh, that we're going to look at, and I don't mean my sermon, I mean Paul's sermon, which we're going to dissect. This is a sermon on a sermon, isn't that great? Um, three main points, if you can jot them down real quick, and then they'll, they'll come back up throughout um, the text. But basically, Paul is presenting Jesus as the answer to three things. He's presenting Jesus to these guys as the answer, the answer to three things, He's the answer to their helplessness, to their brokenness, and to their sinfulness. And these truths are not isolated to 2,000 years ago. These truths are as relevant today as they've ever been. Jesus, I will make the case this morning, Paul will make the case this morning to you, that Jesus is the answer to our helplessness, our brokenness, and our sinfulness. And these, believe it or not, are the questions that our culture is asking. It just is. Maybe not in those exact words, in those exact language, but the people around you, the people you work with, the people in your family that do not yet believe the gospel, they are asking these questions and you have the answer for them. You do. What we need to figure out is how do we communicate that Jesus is the answer to the question they may not even know that they're asking. So that's kind of our approach from this morning. So having said that, let's just dive right in. We're in Acts chapter 13 uh, and we're going to start in verse Thirteen now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga in pamphylia and john that 's John Mark, the writer of the Gospel Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch. In Pisidia. Now just a couple things here. John Mark was sort of an intern to these guys. Paul and Barnabas brought him along as a helper. Uh, he was a young man, uh, kind of a, a man from wealth um, in the city of Antioch in Syria. He came along as an assistant and for some reason at this point in the journey he leaves. He goes back home um, and we don't exactly know why but we find out later that whatever it was it really didn't sit very well with Paul. He he wasn't a fan of of John Mark's decision to leave at this point. Um, My guess is is that mission life wasn't quite what he was expecting. Maybe he had watched too many documentaries, you know, with really good filters and good music, or maybe he'd spent too much time on Instagram feeds from missionaries where they have filters and everything looks really great. And then he got on the mission field and realized that he was probably sick to his stomach um, from bad food and bad water and was uncomfortable, um, and it was really just a rough trip. So my guess is he goes home kind of disillusioned, uh, but that really doesn't matter. That's a side, a side note. What matters here is that these guys cross from the island of Cyprus, which is in the Mediterranean, just just um, about 130 miles off the coast of Israel. Um, they have spent time in Cyprus, and now they sail from Cyprus up into Turkey. Uh, I should have put a map up, and I don't have one, but, but they sail up the Mediterranean, up to the coast, the southern coast of what is now Turkey. Um, they spend a little bit of time there, but immediately they head up north into the area of Galatia. Which is the area that Paul writes the letter of Galatians to, okay? So now they're in Galatia, verse 14. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, I want to make something really clear. There's more than one Antioch, okay? Um, There's Antioch, there's actually like seven Antiochs in the ancient world because it was named after this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a really bad dude, and we don't have time to talk about that. But Antioch, that we've talked about over the last few weeks in Syria, kind of the launching pad, the aircraft carrier, this beachhead church, that's in Syria, just north of Israel. This is Antioch in Pisidia, which is in modern day Turkey, okay, an entirely different region, so just you need to get that detail. It's important. Um, so they went from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, which is Saturday, okay, because this is still Judaism, they're infiltrating Judaism, what we would now call Judaism, with the gospel. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So this was the, 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 um, the common approach of Paul when he would go on his mission trips. He would come into a city and they would go to the place where they would get audience. And that was a synagogue the place that the dispersed Jews throughout the world would gather. Um, and they would go into the synagogue, and what, what synagogues would do, they would have a very specific litur- lit, uh, liturgical order. Um, they would start with reciting the great Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. They would rehearse that together. Um, and then someone would come up, uh, usually the synagogue leader would come up, and would read a passage from the law, okay, which is um, the first five books, Torah, And then he would read a passage from the prophets, which was basically everything else. Um, After those two scripture readings, they would set the the scroll aside, and someone would come up and give an exposition, kind of like we do here, um, usually something regarding that passage that was just written. So um, you can imagine the synagogue would be a small room, something like this. People are sitting somewhat like you are, and and someone comes up and reads these passages of scripture, and you're just thinking, oh, here we go, just another day, another day in synagogue, I can't wait for lunch, what are we going to have, what do we want, you know, um, what do what, what what people eat in Pisidia, Antioch, I don't know, um, probably Chick-fil-A, you know, I don't know, um, but they're sitting there thinking, yeah, I can't wait to go to lunch, and just so happens that Paul and Barnabas are in the audience, and so after the reading of the text, they send word over to Paul, and they ask him if he wants to come up and give a word of encouragement, and naturally they would, I mean, he, he is a uh, pretty well-known um, Pharisee, right, so he would have had instant audience really, and that 's the reason they went to these synagogues in the first place. Um, so Paul is pretty stoked. he gets to get up and he gets to preach the gospel. Now, I remember a time when I went to Uganda, ooh Uganda uh, robs yeah okay she 's from Uganda, so uh, I went to Uganda, which is an amazing country. You have to go to Uganda in fact, um, soon you will have op- uh, opportunity to do that but um, went to Uganda, and it was my first time, and what I love about Uganda is you never know when they're going to ask you to get up and preach. Like, you'll just be sitting there, and, um, and they could be like, so I, literally, it's, it's, it's a Saturday night, and we're doing some kind of a teaching thing, and I'm just sitting there, and, and one of the guys gets up, and he says, and Pastor Sam will be preaching tomorrow for us at our church out in nowhere, the middle of nowhere, and I'm like, What? nobody told me that, okay, so I guess I'm preaching, you know, at the, in the middle of nowhere, so, um, and it was still funny, you know, I, I didn't really have time to prepare a sermon, so I pulled up something that I'd pe- teach on, on before, and taught on before, and I get there, and I, I know what these guys, because unfortunately in Uganda, there's, there's a lot of belief um, in the, what's called the prosperity gospel, and it's just kind of this idea that if, if you just have enough faith, God will give you material things. And the, the, the lack of material things has to do with the lack of faith. It's really just, a, it's, it's an acidic and an evil doctrine. I absolutely can't stand it. And the fact that it is, is infiltrated there really is too bad. And I know that these guys are like, oh, the American's coming. He's going to come tell us how we can be prosperous like America. And I know that's what they want me to say. And so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, okay, I know what they want me to say, but I know what I need to say. And so, so I get up there and I'm just having this conflict you know, but, but ultimately, of course, you need to tell them the truth, you need to tell them the gospel, you need to tell them the reality that their poverty is not linked to their lack of faith, that God is actually using and redeeming and in, in all sorts of different ways, and I say that to say this, though, is Paul's having a similar moment. He's just sitting in the congregation, and all of a sudden, they say, Paul, would you like to come up and address us? And they know what they want Paul to say, and they, and they know what they think Paul's going to say. And what they think Paul is going to say is, hey, keep going with Judaism. You're doing a good job. Keep, follow the law more closely. Look at the Torah. Memorize more scripture. Understand more what the rules are. Continue to do that. That's what they're expecting Paul to do. And then Paul would have felt a tug uh, probably in his soul to want to, to want to say what they wanted him to say. They want to hear about how great the law is, how great Moses is, how great, of course, Yahweh is, and how the law is, how they're going to continue to get where they need to go. So Paul stands up, and he begins to address them, and we see it here in verse 16. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen, when he says men of Israel and you who fear God, he's saying, Jewish people and Gentile God-fearers, those who are in audience that maybe aren't um, Jews, but they uh, served Yahweh. So he says, men of Israel and you who fear God. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked him for a king, and God gave them Saul and the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Now, pause right there. At this point, the audience is thinking, well, this is exactly what I thought he would say. To this point, he's really connected with them on the stuff they already agree with, okay? And that is that Yahweh made a covenant with you guys. He selected you out of the world. He gave you um, the law. He's given you kings. He's given you all the things that you need, last of which was the King David. And, and they're going, uh-huh, 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 okay, good job, good job. Yep, this is exactly what I would have expected. Now, what, why is Paul giving this history lesson? Why isn't he just getting right to the gospel? Why isn't he just getting right to Jesus? Because that's the thing that they really need to hear. They don't need to hear more about what they already know, right? Well, Paul, for one, he's brilliant. <laughs> okay? He's connecting with them first on the things that they agree with. Do you notice that? Now, here's a little tip for you. When you want to share the gospel, for one, it's not a monologue. It's a dialogue. Okay? Um, it's, it's not a monologue. It's a dialogue. But for two, when you want to share the gospel, find the place that you agree on and start there. Don't start with what you disagree on. Start with what you do agree. And this is what Paul does. He's going to get to Christ. He gets to Christ as soon as he can. But what he does is he starts with what they both believe is true. And that is that Yahweh, God in the Old Testament, is a saving God. And that's his point here. If you look at the way he, he says it in this passage, he says, he chose our fathers. He made the people great. He uh, led us with uplifted arm. He put up with us. He gave them, us our land. He gave us the judges. He gave us Saul. He removed him. I mean, it's very God-centric, this message. He says, God is a God that saves. God is a God that is saving. And they're going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's right. That's right, amen. I don't know what they would say. You know, I don't know, but they, something like that. And, and they're agreeing with him. He's starting where they are, but then he drops a bomb on them in verse 23. So let's back up a minute. I want, you to, I want you to feel it. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. They're going, uh-huh, uh-huh. Of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, will do all my will. And they're like thinking, yes, David. David is great. We love David. And then in verse 23, of this man... His offspring, being David, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as promised. And the room goes, it's completely hushed. They weren't expecting this. Yeah, we love David. We love the law. We know. And then he says, this Jesus, who you probably have heard of, is the fulfillment of all of God's redemptive history throughout all of Israel. Okay, and it just gets real awkward. (laughs) It gets real awkward really fast. It's really similar to this moment. Jesus himself, at one point, you remember he walks into the synagogue, the beginning of his, his ministry, and a similar thing happens. Somebody reads a passage from Isaiah. They put the scroll back. Jesus comes up, and he sits down, and they're waiting for him to say something like someone would have said so many times on so many Saturdays before, and Jesus says, this passage, which is telling of the future Messiah to come, today it's fulfilled. And everybody goes, what did he just say? (laughs) Did he just say, it's all fulfilled today? As in, he's saying, I am the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament? Yeah, he just said that. This is a really similar moment, except here it's Paul making the case that Jesus is the culmination of God's redemptive history through all of Israel. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus as he promised. And then he mentions John the Baptist. He says, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of, whom, of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So here's the answer. The question is, why is Paul giving a history lesson about the covenant? The answer is because Paul is showing that Jesus is not another way of salvation. He is the only way of salvation. You know, Paul isn't coming into the synagogue and saying, yeah, that Judaism stuff was great, but here, let me give you another idea. He's saying, no, 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 same idea, but Jesus is the way that Judaism works. Okay, so let me show it to you in three words. When you think about Jesus and how he relates to the Old Testament, I want you to remember three words, okay? Continuity, climax, and creator. Can you remember those three? Let's go through them. Jesus is the continuity, has continuity with the Old Testament. Uh, When I was in Israel years back, uh, we went through this thing called Hezekiah's Tunnel. It was one of the coolest things ever, and it was literally a tunnel dug by, well, by his men Hezekiah in the Old Testament and you're going through it takes about 40 minutes to go through and you're kind of crouched down and there's water in there and as you're going through it you're seeing all these little chisel marks on the side just incredible it was dug by hand with literally hammer and chisel I mean it took them forever and when you get to the middle of the tunnel you notice just one tiny little spot on the side you would miss it if you weren't looking for it where where the wall kind of jets out a little bit it kind of goes like this and it jets out a little bit. And your guide, he'll point out to you, he'll say, you see that spot where it jets out? That's where the tunnel met in the middle. These guys, I don't know how they did it, 2,500 plus years ago, I don't know how they had the science to do this, they dug it from each side and met in the middle within less than an inch of difference. (laughs) It's absolutely incredible that they could do that. I mean, they don't have ultrasound technology, they don't have ways of, I mean, they just did it, they figured it out. Now, when you look at the covenant, the covenant—yes, there are multiple covenants—but you look at the covenant of God's saving hand with humanity. It is one tunnel. Although it is, it comes, uh, it it is come at from two different sides. It meets in the middle, and Christ is the middle. Okay, Uh, it's very important to understand that the law only works if Jesus came and died. It only works if Jesus came and died. The law was never intended to be, and we'll talk about this more, the law was never intended to be the way that we get saved. Jesus has always been the intention of how we would get saved. So continuity is the first word. You need to understand that the old covenant and the new covenant, though they have differences, they are ultimately one covenant. And that covenant was fulfilled and ratified in the person of Christ Jesus. Think about it like this. Think about a telescope. You need to look through a telescope the right direction. If you look at it backwards, which is looking at it through the law and then Christ, everything looks really far away. If you look at it the right direction with Christ first, everything makes sense. Jesus paid for the sins of all the past, present, and future saints. All of God's redemptive history in the continuity is found in Jesus, okay? The second word is climax. Climax, Jesus is the crest of God's redemptive narrative. Do you understand what I mean by that? You ever been on a roller coaster? Okay, the most thrilling part is not the part, there's a science behind this, the most thrilling part is not the part where you go down. The most thrilling part is the part right at the top, where you look around and you see your car, and you think, I hope I locked that, and then you start to go down. I mean, that, it's just that moment right before, that anticipation right before. Jesus is the climax of God's redemptive story. He is the high point. And it's right in the middle. And the Old Testament looks forward to him and the New Testament looks back at him, but he is the pinnacle and the point of all salvific history. Amen? He is the climax. He is the points. Okay? Number three, the third word is creator. Yes, Jesus was born of a virgin and came into this earth, but, earth, but Jesus is God. He is God's son. And he was the originator of God's plan of salvation. Do you understand that? He was the originator of it. So as Paul is sitting here and he's telling these guys, look at how faithful God has been to save. God is such a saving God. And by the way, God is continuing to save now through this climactic figure who is Jesus Christ. He is the point. And if you miss him, you miss the whole thing. And a good example of that is Jews today. They're still holding on. They're holding on to the law. They're holding on to the commands. They're holding on to the Sabbath. They're holding on to the the holy days. And they've completely missed salvation. Why? Because they missed Christ. They missed Christ. He He is the central binding figure of God's saving work throughout all history. He is the author and the finisher of our faith, Hebrews says. So this is why Paul brings up and connects Jesus back to their saving history. Now, another little point here, another little tip here when you're sharing the gospel. People need to see that Jesus is not just the answer to some kind of an immediate need. They need to see that Jesus is the answer to all of their life and all of their history and all of humanity. See, Jesus isn't just the answer for you today in a Western society that that only works and only makes sense for the questions we're asking. No, Jesus is the answer for all of creation. He is the answer to not only all of the Jews' expectations, but all of our expectations. He is the answer to all of the needs of human history. Now, why is Paul connecting Jesus so clearly to David? If you look more closely, and I want you to see this in verse 22. He goes, he's going through history, he talks about Moses, he talks about the law, he talks about the judges, he talks about the era of Joshua, he gets to Saul, he gets to David, and then from David he jumps straight to Jesus. What about everything else that happened? I mean, there was a lot of Bible that happened between David and Jesus. Why does he make a beeline directly to Jesus here? I'm really glad that you guys asked me that question. It's a very good, astute question to ask me. Thank you. Firstly, it's because David was, and it says it right there in the passage, David was the man after God's own heart. David was as close as it got to who Jesus would eventually be. Because, not because he was a great man, but because he was a man that reflected the heart and the mind of his God. And of Christ, of course, is the ultimate reflection because he is God. He is the word of God. So David was a man after God's own heart. Um, He was also the standard for the golden era of Israel's history. You understand what I mean by that? Um, So depending on whether you're a Democrat or Republican, if you're a Republican and you're you're really into Reagan, you know, Reagan was like the golden era of Republican politics or whatever, you know. Uh, So it's like everything has their golden era. You know, right after World War II, our economy was booming. That was this golden era in America. Well, for Israel, the golden era was when David was the king. He was the man after God's own heart. Everybody looked back at David and they thought, oh, if we could just get back to this David king, it would be so great. Everyone had, even thousands of years later, everyone had this expect, expectation for David to come. And, and also because God stitched that expectation into their minds. If you read the Bible, you are gonna see over and over and over again, God said, well, just wait, I'm gonna bring you a king through the line of David. He's gonna be the best king. He's gonna be like David, but way better, and so these guys, because God made it this way, they have this expectation for this hero to come. When is our David going to come? So you think it's any accident that Paul, who he knows his audience, he knows who he's talking to. Do you think it's any accident that he taps into this messianic expectation, this expectation for a hero to come? He taps into it and directly connects it to Jesus. Now here's the problem, though, that they have. The problem is that the line of David has gone to seed. The tree has been cut down. How could anyone possibly come through the line of David at this point? Now, of course, we know the gospel writers make it very clear that Jesus came from the line of David. He was the shoot of Jesse, this life that came out of this dead stump, right? He was the hero, the hero that Israel always wanted. So skip ahead in Paul's sermon a little bit to verse 32, and I'm going to jump around a little bit because Paul continues his thoughts here in verse 32. Therefore, he says, also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised, being Jesus up, did not see corruption. Here's what he's saying. Hey, you're David, your hero. He's dead. He's still dead. I mean, like today, he's still, his bones are somewhere. We don't know where he is. He's still dead. He's still rotting. How is that working out? He's not our hero. He's not our champion. He's saying this David can't possibly be your hero because he's dead. Now guess who is our hero? The one who did not see corruption. The one whose bones are not still in the grave. The one who raised from the dead. The one who can be our hero because he went to the right end of the Father and he's ruling the universe. The messianic expectation is fulfilled solely and primarily in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, let me bring that down to earth a little bit for you. Because I know that's a lot of Old Testament in things. Here's how this applies to everyone that you talk to. Everyone that you talk to, including yourself. You were hardwired. Just like God hardwired Israel to have a messianic expectation, a Davidic expectation. You as a human are hardwired to have a hero expectation. Let me read you something uh, the great theologian uh, Ben Affleck wrote. Uh, a couple years ago when he was doing some superhero movie. In an interview, he said, we certainly are in need of heroes. There is a lot of stuff going on in the world, from natural to man-made disasters. This was right in the middle of all the shootings. There's still been a lot of shootings, but there was a lot at that time. And it's really scary, he says. Part of the appear, uh, appeal of this genre, meaning the superhero genre, is wish fulfillment. Wouldn't it be nice if there was somebody who can save us from all this? Save us from ourselves? Save us from the consequences of our actions? And save us from people who are evil? Oh, thank you, Ben. Thank you. You're so smart. But he's right. He's absolutely right. He doesn't know what he's saying. He's right. We have built into us a hero desire. Just ask my four-year-old son. He loves superheroes. Doesn't matter which one. He just likes them. All of them. I, got, I wanted to make his day there to get him a Batman toothbrush. And he, it was the greatest thing. It was actually really cute because it came in a two-pack. And he really wanted me to use the other one. So we both had Batman toothbrushes. I'm like, oh, it's really small, though. I'm like, I don't know if this is going to cut it. Listen to what George Lucas said. George Lucas, one of the, the storytellers of our, of our era, right? He said, the story being told in Star Wars is a classic one. Every few hundred years, the story is retold because we have a tendency to do the same things over and over again. He goes on to say, I've come to the conclusion that mythology is really a form of archaeological psychology. Mythology gives you a sense of what a people believes and what they fear. His point is simply this. The reason we keep telling the same story over and over again, which is good versus evil and a hero, is because it taps into our deepest truth, our deepest knowledge of what is true and our deepest longings. We know there's a cosmic battle. We talked about it last week. We know there's good versus evil and we know we can't save ourselves. We know someone has to come in from outside. The, the, the Superman has to come from another planet and fix this for us. There are more hero movies out there than anything else. We need a hero. We have a built-in longing for it. Your job as a gospeler, as a, someone who shares the gospel, is to tap into that desire for ness and to show them how Christ is that hero. That is how we share the gospel. Effective gospel communication connects people's deepest longings for a messianic expectation, wanting the one who's going to come save them. Jewish kids grew up for hundreds of years. When is Messiah going to come? When is Messiah going to come? The whole Old Testament is pointing towards this Messiah. And Paul, in this moment, drops the mic and he says, Jesus is the hero that you've been waiting for. Now, how is the hero, how is Jesus the hero that we all need? Well, that's what the rest of the sermon's about. So Paul's first point, if you want to write it down, Paul presents Jesus as the answer to the, our helplessness. The question, who will save us? Jesus is our hero. Now, for Paul's second point, Don't worry, I'm going to speed up. Uh, Verse 26. Verse 26. He says, Brothers, notice he includes himself. He's part of them. He's one of them. Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. That's the gospel. The good news. The Ewangelion. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets. Now, notice what he's doing here. He's going to give an indictment to the Jews in Jerusalem for how they treated the hero when he came. Here's what they did to him. Okay, let me read that again. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him. What's the first indictment? They didn't recognize him. The God of the universe came down in human flesh. Fulfilled everything the Old Testament said, and they didn't recognize him. They missed it. Nor understand the utterances of the prophets. Listen to this, this is stinging. Which are read every Sabbath. <laughs> they killed the guy, even though every single Sunday they opened the scriptures and looked at the passages that said he was coming. I'm going to talk about blindness. I mean, how many churches. Have we been a part of where are going now, where we hear the truth every single week and we do nothing about it? Messiah was declared to these guys every Sabbath, and when he came, they killed him. Well, that's bad news, right? Well, yeah. It says they fulfilled them by condemning him. Isn't that interesting? They fulfilled the scriptures by condemning him, by putting him to death. And though they found him in no guilt, worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. So the indictment is that they didn't recognize him when he came, and then they put to death an innocent man. Even if he wasn't the Christ, they still put to death an innocent man. This is the indictment. What hope is there for these guys? Paul brings them to their knees and reminds them that they are in this place of need. How can the hero possibly win when he's been killed? Well, of course, we see that the, the resurrection, right, is the answer to that. But but look a little bit deeper at this. I don't want you to miss this. Look at verse twenty nine. Here's Paul's answer to the problem. Well, Jesus has been crucified, right, um, by the very people he came to save. In verse twenty nine, when they had carried out what all that was written of him. Are you catching that? Let me read it again. When they, the Jews, had carried out, as in killing Jesus, all that was written of him. <laughs> you think it was an accident? You think God sent his Messiah and he was like, ah, they killed him. Man, what do I do? i got to get another one. Oh, wait, it's Trinity. We only have one. Oh, shoot. Okay. You know, come on. No. Like, it wasn't an accident. We're like, oops, they killed the Messiah. Now we're in trouble. What are we going to do? They killed the Messiah exactly like God said they would because he's in charge. He's in control. He said they would part his garments. What did they do? Part his garments. He said his bones wouldn't be broken. What did they do? They didn't break his bones. Not only did they break his legs so that he would die quicker. They didn't have to. He was already dead. It said he would pluck out his beard. They did. It said that he would be beaten by his stripes. We are healed in Isaiah 53. What do they do? They beat him with his stripes. They said his hands would be pierced. Crucifixion wasn't even around when Isaiah 53 was written. His hands were pierced. Everything that they did that looked like a loss was a win. Can I get an Amen. Everything that they thought the enemy was winning was Jesus winning. Every time they thought the enemy had a a foothold, it was actually God that was using the enemy's worst to produce his best. Man, that is good news because the world is sitting in this place where they are feeling like there is no possible way that God can use my garbage to serve his holiness. There's two basic reasons people don't believe the gospel. Either they think they are far too good for it, Or they think they are far too gone for it. There's no way God could redeem my life. Do you know what I've done? Do you know what I've done? If I told you it would make you shudder. There's no way God can forgive. There's no way God can use what I've done to his glory. Tell that to the Apostle Paul who stood there and watched Stephen's head get crushed in with rocks for preaching the gospel, right? Tell me God can't redeem the worst. Tell that to Joseph when he's sitting there and his brothers who sold him into slavery are now coming to get food from him and he has this ability to save his brothers. Because of their worst, God used it to produce his best. This is the gospel. He takes the worst and he makes it his best. Tell me God can't use what you've done wrong in your life for his purposes. Does God rejoice in our sin? No. No. Does he forgive it? Yes. Does he use it for his purposes? Yes, he does. He is on the throne. So the second point Paul makes is he presents Jesus as the answer to our brokenness. He's the answer to our brokenness. Listen, Jesus is living proof that God uses our worst to create his best. He used death to kill death. He took the worst, malicious, most malicious, most evil thought of mankind, which is to kill the Son of God, and he used it to save him. Praise the Lord. His third point is in verse 38. The gospel just gets better and better, doesn't it? Verse 38. Listen to what he says. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That word free can also be translated justified. Justified. If you don't know that word, you need to know it. And I like freed also. I think freed is a good translation. But justified is also what that means. The good news, the crescendo of Paul's teaching, is not only that Christ is the the nucleus of redemptive history, but that Jesus has made a way for them to be justified. But notice that he says it did, that Jesus did what the law could not do. That the law could not do. What does he mean, freed from everything you could not be freed from by the law? What does he mean by that? What was the purpose of the law? Now, I'm not going to get into every purpose of the law. But here was the primary purpose of the law, according to the New Testament authors. The primary purpose of the law was first to reveal our sinful need and to reveal his holy standard. The law was like a mirror, okay? It showed us that we need some help, <laughs> okay? It showed us our brokenness, and that was all that it was really meant to do. It wasn't meant to heal us. It wasn't meant, it just showed us how far we had fallen from God's perfect, righteous, holy standard. That's what the law was designed to do. Listen to Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. I'll just read it to you. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Why is that? Because you have to do it all perfectly. Because God is a perfect God. He cannot tolerate any sinfulness. Now it is evident that no one is justified, there's that word, or freed, before God by the law. can not be more clear than that. For righteousness, or for the righteous shall live by faith. Now listen to this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, how can the law be a curse? How can the law be a curse, Paul? I remember this Tom and Jerry cartoon. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This Tom and Jerry cartoon. And um, the owners of the pets leave for the day. Or for the week. I think they're going on this long trip. And uh, which one's the cat? Which one's the mouse? I forget. Does anyone help me out on this? Tom's Tom's a cat. Tom cat. Duh duh. Okay. So Tom, the, the cat, he's so he instantly freaks out. He's like, what am I gonna eat? And then and and then he realizes that the cupboards are fully stocked with tuna fish. Oh, praise the Lord. And he just relaxes. I mean he's like freaking out and then he relaxes and he goes and he opens the cupboard and he grabs a can and he opens the drawer to get the can opener and it's gone. And he looks around, and there's Jerry, the mouse, with the can opener. <laughs> and of course, you know, the whole 20 minutes is him trying to get the can opener. Finally, somehow, the can opener, you know, it, 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 he finally gets it. He finally gets the can opener. And he goes and he opens the cupboard, and there's a lock on it. <laughs> and there's Jerry with the key. Here's the key to the lock, to the tuna fish. So he chases him around, he finally gets the key, he opens it up, he opens the cupboard, and all the tuna's gone. And Jerry had gotten rid of it. I mean, it's just this, it's this, oh, it's just this painful cycle, but it's exactly what he means by the fact that the law is a curse. It shows you the holiness of God, it tells you how to get it, but it doesn't give you the power to become it. I heard the example the other day, I thought it was good. It's like a train on the tracks. Oh, great, there's a train on the tracks, but it doesn't give you an engine to get anywhere. So you have a train and you have tracks, but you have no power to move it. Or another example I thought was good, it's like getting an x-ray that your bone is broken and then trying to take that x-ray and fix your bone with it. You can't. All the x-ray is doing is telling you how much you need to be fixed. This is what the law does. The law was meant to drive Israel to the point where they recognized their Messiah when he came. That's why Jesus wept over Israel when he looked at Jerusalem and he knew they were going to kill him. And he said, oh, Israel, I would have gathered you like a mother gathers her. Or a mother hand gathers her chicks. If he would only recognize that I was what you needed. I was the can opener. I was the key. Everything that you needed is here in me. And they missed it. The law was to be a guide to his imputed righteousness. Paul talks about this in Galatians 4. He says the law is like a schoolmaster. He says it doesn't matter, even if you're the master, of the, uh, even, if you're, even if you're the prince himself, it, when you're a child, the, the king puts you under a schoolmaster, and you still have to do what he says. Even though you were chosen by God to be the people of God, the law was basically just teaching you and holding you tight to the Lord so that at some point, he could make you sons and daughters. I mean, this is, this is Paul's analogy. It's a brilliant analogy. The law was meant to guide us. That the gospel is the power to give us righteousness. Now having that in mind, read this text again. Paul says, let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is justified from everything which you could not be justified by the law. Praise the Lord. Okay, what does that matter to anybody out there? You think Okay, it matters to the Jews, right? because they were living according to the law. What about my neighbor? He doesn't care about what the Jewish law says. Your neighbor, your friend, your family member, whoever it is, you, yourself, you know that you need to be justified. You know it. Now, we don't really use the word sin in our culture anymore. It's kind of become a bad word. Um, we don't use the word law. I mean, that just sounds religious. And I would suggest to you that if you use the word sin, you might actually kind of, it, it's not always as helpful. <laughs> calling your unchristian friend a sinner isn't always as helpful. Um, But let me suggest to you that even though they may not like that word, they know. They know that they are a sinner. They know they have a deficit. Every one of us has has been born with an intrinsic understanding and a knowledge that we are in the red. (laughs) You know what I mean by that? Like, there's a deficit between us and God. We get it. Now, You know, 20, 30 years of Disney movies and programming telling you how great you are and believe in yourself and you're amazing can can begin to numb that consciousness. But deep down, every human knows they are at a deficit with God. They know that something is wrong with them and that someone else is going to have to fix it. And they also know, if they're being honest, that rules don't fix them. I can tell my kids what to do over and over and over again but it will not change their heart so what is the answer the answer is that someone needs to forgive us but it needs to be someone that actually has the power to do that i mean you can tell me i could i can confess things to you and say i just feel so much guilt over these things and you can say sam it's okay you're a good person you could say that but you don't have any authority to tell me i'm forgiven who are you I don't even have the authority to forgive myself, do I? We all know there is a higher authority that can only, only he can decide whether or not we are forgiven. So we need to be forgiven by someone who has the power to do that, not just Oprah Winfrey or Joel Osteen on the television telling you that you're a good person. That doesn't cut muster with anyone who's thinking critically. We also need someone to live a perfect life for us, because not only do we need our past to be forgiven, we got this whole present and future thing to think about. You forgive everything I did the last 30 years, but what about I'm going to do today? We also need a change in our heart and our desires. The gospel answers all of those problems. It changes our past by giving us forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't God just forgetting our sin. It's him paying for it. God doesn't just forget sin. He pays for it. It gives us a new Life because he actually imputes his perfect life to us. When God looks at me, he doesn't see my screwed up life, he sees Christ's perfect life pasted over the top of mine. Well, that's good news. But the gospel isn't just that I'm forgiven, it isn't just that Jesus' perfect life is accredited to me, it's also that my desires have been changed because I've been born again. Because I've been born again. This is good news. It's called regeneration. This is the message that your lost friends need to hear. Thirdly, so my third point is just this, that Paul presents Jesus as the answer to our sinfulness, the answer to our deepest human need, which is to be right with God. Now, it's gonna take some finagling to get them to realize that's really why they're experiencing so much guilt and shame. It's not just because they have an image problem, it's because they have an identity problem. But you can get them there. Let's finish it out. Verse forty. Look at Paul's imperative. This is where hopefully it will tie back into our introduction, verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. He gives a warning to these guys in his sermon. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that will not believe. you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them on the, sa- and the next Sabbath. Well, that's a good thing, right? And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, listen to what Paul's primary urge is for them. He says, he urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is the call to the Galatian believers. As Paul is wrapping up his sermon and as they say, will you come preach again? He says, yes. And here is my imperative to you, continue in the grace of God, not the law. Not your own works. Not your own ability to do right. Not your own ability to fix yourself. Continue in the grace of God. Remember the analogy I told you in the beginning? God gives us everything that we need in the gospel. Paul's urge is to to use it. (laughs) Continue in the grace of God. Don't go back to the law. Now you might think, Sam, I got all this when I first got saved. The gospel is great for when you're a new Christian. No, 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 no. The gospel is not the front door. It's the whole house. The gospel is not what makes you saved primarily. It's also what sanctifies you. The gospel is the answer to every question that you have. God has accomplished it for you. We need to live into that truth. It's not as though he, this is what he says in Galatians. He says, were you saved by grace and now you're going to be sanctified by the law? No. You're saved by grace. You're sanctified by grace. You're saved by the gospel. You grow by the gospel. My encouragement to you is that you'll never be effective at sharing the gospel if you're not continuing to believe it for yourself. Paul was effective as an evangelist, as a missionary because he had a high view of his need for God's grace. He was a terrorist who had killed Christians. He had blood on his hands. He was so aware of his own need for the grace of God that he was an effective evangelist. You begin to become less effective when we stop realizing our own need for the grace of God. Homework for you, finish out the chapter. I'm out of time. Finish out the chapter, read it on your own. There's just a few verses left there. Um, I'm gonna pray, we're gonna stop here and then uh, we have a little bit uh, of time to have a conversation. Is my mic cutting in and out? Is that happening? Or is that just me? Check, check. Lord, thank you so much for this time, God, just in your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you uh, that we could talk about what it is and how it affects us, Lord. And We pray, God, that we would be those that believe it, that walk in it. Thank you, Jesus, that unlike David, your bones are not in the grave. Thank you that, that you are the hero that we all long for, the hero humanity longs for. Thank you that you take the worst things in our life that we've done and you transform them into the best things that you could have ever done by your redemptive, sovereign hand. Thank you, God, that you have justified us, given us your righteousness, taken our sinfulness, given us a clean bill of health and a new spirit by regenerating us, living inside of us, that you have a hope for us in eternity, God. We believe all these things. Lord, we pray that we would live into them. We pray that we would apply them, that we would believe them for ourselves, God, and at the same time, therefore, we can call others to believe them as well. God, I pray for us. I pray that we could, if anything, just be those that have great faith, that we could believe, Lord, in what you're doing, what you have done, what you will do. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to invite some friends up. So uh, Ryan and Bree and Abby, why don't you guys come on up and get situated up here. Um, So a little bit of background. Um, One of the things that we're trying to do here uh, at Philippi is get the body to look at each other. Sounds simple, right? Um, We're recognizing that, where do I start? Okay, here's my theory. My theory is that the church, the people in the church don't see themselves as useful because they don't see what they could be doing. And the reason they don't see what they could be doing is because we're not giving time for the body to come up and talk about what they're doing. All of you guys in here are doing amazing things for Christ, And what we're trying to do, as well as interview different people in our community, is we're trying to give place and give time to people that are doing kingdom work in our church. Um, So so Ryan and Bree and Abby, these guys, part of our church, part of our family, um, they have a connection and a mission um, that they are on in in Albania. And so I wanted to invite them to come up and share a little bit about um, kind of what they have done, what they're planning to do, how we can support them, and things like that. So just a little bit of a conversation um, so that's, that's kind of where we're at. Um, you guys, are your mics all on? Are you guys, you guys good? Thanks for coming up. How are you guys doing? Good? <laughs> Great. So Ryan's gonna start by 20 minutes of uh, um, off-the-cuff um, stand-up comedy, and then we'll get right into, uh, so go, go ahead. Okay. Um, why don't you guys start by telling us a little bit about Albania. Now just pretend, because this is probably the truth, pretend that we have no clue where Albania even is, what it is, it could be a city, could be a country, okay, uh, you know, let us know what, what's going on there, uh, what is this place, and then we'll kind of we'll go from there. You want me to go? Yeah, why don't you start? Yeah. All right.
1: Albania is, uh, you guys know where Italy is, so you take the boot of Italy and you kick it up backwards, you'll hit Albania, that's where Albania is. Does
0: that make sense? Everybody got that? Can you visualize it? <laughs> yeah. So um, it's Eastern Eastern Europe, right? Yes. Okay, Eastern Europe. And it's, it's Europe. Um, just to the left of Philippi, right? We're in Greece? It been right next to Greece? Yeah. Very right. close
1: to Greece. Okay. Not uh, this Philippi, but the real one. Yeah. I'm not great with visualizing maps. You have a microphone. Yeah, it's
2: just north of Greece. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Help me out.
0: Okay. So that's, so that's uh, where it is. Tell us a little bit about what is going on there economically, what's their past, their background. And we'll go from there.
1: One of the most important aspects of uh, Albania right now is the fact that they just recently, 30-ish years ago, they came out of communism. Uh, what's really important about that, a couple things. Uh, one is that their economy is completely shot. Um, a lot of things are shot from that. Uh, what the enemy did is is pretty, pretty spectacular. But even with that, there's so much gospel awesomeness in that because what... What God did with that is that he, uh, even though Albania is primarily Islamic, is primarily Muslim, um, communism basically pulled the roots of religion out of the entire country for, for a while, uh, for a long time. And so uh, now you know, communism fell in like 1991. Since that point, they've been kind of piecing together their freedom to worship. And so now those, they're so grateful to just have the ability to practice their faith, no matter what faith it is. Um, they're very tolerant of one another. You have their neighbor, with, which is Kosovo. They're uh, the Albanians over there. It's a completely different place there. The, the freedom to, to preach the gospel is not nearly the same as in Kosovo as it is in Albania. And the reason is communism. So what an evil, you know, situation and, and, you know, dire situation that that was, but yet God, you know, mm. what, he, what he did with that.
0: So just amazing opportunity, Very important. you know, yeah. there. Um, so you guys, and let me give a little bit of backstory. So Ryan, you took your first trip years back, right? With a few guys, um, kind of scoped it out. And then, um, what was it? Maybe a year or so. It doesn't matter too much. A little bit later, um, you guys all and your family, um, Ryan and Bree and Abby came along as well, and your family, you guys all went as a group and spent some time there, um, and then you guys have separate trips planned, so just so you guys know, so Abby's going for six months, which I think deserves a round of applause. I just think like, she's going to go do this, um, and, you're, you're going, and you're leaving in the, the spring, okay, um, so she's going for, for six months, and then separately, um, Ryan is going to return with, uh, with, with some of your family or... Um, to, to be determined, a team, some people from River Valley, hopefully some of us, uh, my, my wife and I actually are going to probably go as well in the summer, which is going to be really cool, so having said all that, I want to hear kind of about your guys' trip that you guys took last, how it affected each of you, and um, Bree, why don't you start, tell us a little bit about what your experience was like there, um, and, and how, you know, just how it shaped you, what it, what it did in your life, um, and we'll just kind of go down the line, and then we'll, we'll go from there.
2: Well, I guess for starters, I uh, don't really like to travel. I'm kind of a homebody, and um, so strange places. And knowing that when it was something Ryan started talking about, it's like, yeah, no. <laughs> but in all of the, you know, anxious feelings about traveling, about taking my children somewhere strange, and all the strange things, it was a really cool experience that the Lord met all of that in a way that, you know, in preparations and knowing that when you're walking in something that is you feel sure that it's God's will for you when you're willing to do it really is something that was for me and then I really didn't feel anxious when we were there and so the Lord answered prayer that way but it's hard I mean it was really difficult in a lot of ways of you know they have a cash-only society and the food is not convenient or easy and um, things like that but being able to serve together with something huge, with my family and our kids, and then um, feel like what you're doing matters, and that the Lord paves the way to do whatever he yeah.
0: calls you to do. Yeah. Yeah. Mine, yeah. I think that's great, because I think in reality, if we only did things that were comfortable, I mean, I think all of us have had that thought, like, oh, I'd love to do missions, but man, I don't know, like, that's going to be, that's going to be hard, but it sounds like when you got there, that anxiety kind of waned, and you, uh, well, it started waning right when I said, outside, it started raining right when I said, waned. <laughs> It was like I had power. I said it's, it waned, and it started waning. I think I need to go eat lunch. Okay. You're,
1: you're the stand-up comedian. Those are one,
0: that was one of those things that comes into your head, and you're thinking, should I say that? And then you just do it, and you're like, ah, that was really stupid. Okay. that is waning outside. Okay. Um, you're like, our attention is waning. Okay. So, yeah. So, what, what was, uh, and Abby, maybe you go, so tell us about your experience there, kind of, what, you know, it, it must have had an impact on you because you're going back for six months. You mm-hmm. know, So tell us a little bit about your, your experience there.
3: Sure, um, let's see. Uh, it was a really awesome thing to go with the Immols. I was so blessed to be part of their family for that long. It was really cool. And um, my kind of primary focus was during, uh, we were working with the kids camp. So it was the um, a new church plant over there. We were doing like arts and crafts and music. Um, In Bible stories. So I got to teach some guitar and some singing. And it was a little bit out of my comfort zone because I come from a musical family, but I don't really play guitar that much. But the Lord still used it, it was good.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, And I think one of the biggest things was just seeing um, the Lord's grace. And like, I didn't feel um, what's the word, competent, you know, to get up there and teach some Bible stories or to whatever and um but the lord just gave that much grace to be able to do you know like what you're saying yeah. is that he has grace to save us and he has grace to sanctify us and grace to use us and that was really good mm-hmm. um and yeah so i want to go back just because um it was so cool to be a part of that ministry over there and it just seems like a really ideal time of life to do that um so
0: so what are you going to be doing for 6 months
3: Yeah, so I'll be um, working with the same church that we were working with, and um, I think as far as I understand, my focus will be like meeting with young ladies, helping disciple them, because that's a really big need right now is uh, for all the new believers to be discipled in their walks with the Lord, Um, so I would appreciate prayer for that, because that's kind of new for me, (laughs) Um, but so I'll be meeting with young ladies, and then probably just helping with kids and whatever else they need, it's kind of... A little fuzzy still, but...
0: Because they do camps all through the summer.
3: Yeah, through the summer. Then they do some tutoring and stuff during the school year, so I'm not really sure how it's...
0: And those camps are kind of of their outreach, right? That's kind of how they try to get the parents involved through the kids.
3: Yeah. Yeah, okay. And then they do English classes for the adults as well.
0: Okay, okay.
1: So can I follow up on that? Yep, follow up. So uh, in my first trip with a couple of uh, brothers, one thing I noticed when I came back... uh, one thing I noticed when I was there, that when I communicated, when I came back, was a need for women to be sent there. Um, there's a certain brokenness in the way that the culture is handling women there. And it's kind of, uh, it's kind of heartbreaking just to see just the way that they're, they're not valued like they should be. So when I came back, I began to pray that God would raise up women to be sent there. And, and what's interesting is that more females are coming to Christ. There, like through the ministry that that they're doing, so to hear that Abby's going back for six months is just such a huge, so cool. yeah. Praise God. So, um, so mothers, grandmothers, single women. I mean, pray, pray that God, you know, maybe God yeah. would stir your heart to yeah. to go and be minister. What she's doing there too. Yeah,
0: yeah.
3: Go ahead. I also wanted to point out that it's a very safe country. So like don't worry, because mm-hmm. there were like moms walking their kids out at eleven o'clock at night and there's like not it's way safer than Grants Pass. So the dark alleyways.
0: <laughs> Did they even do that in Cave Junction? I don't know. <laughs> I know. I don't Bruce Bruce, I'm sorry, Bruce. Well
1: another really cool thing that's that's really important, uh, and I don't mean to take over here, but um, <laughs> really, really important. So Romans fifteen nineteen mentions that Paul went as far as Illyricum, and that was like the ends of the earth you know, at that time. You know, it's like he went as far as he could possibly go. Uh, Illyricum is modern-day Albania. the The work that he did there and the gospel preaching and the ministry that he did planted such an awesome uh, seed that that actually Albania became primarily a Christian nation until the Ottoman Empire took over, and overran, and overruled, Uh, slowly but surely, the uh, Christianity began to be snuffed out there, but, but when you share the gospel with them, you can share that scripture with them, and go, this is you guys, Hmm. and they know that their ancestors are the Illyrians, and when you mention that, they're like, oh, that's us, like, yeah, return to your roots, return, return to Christ, so that's been a really cool it's
0: amazing. One of the, one of the, uh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I yeah. just
3: wanted to share another exciting thing about um, Albania is that because they are culturally Muslim, they're considered by the surrounding Muslim countries to be like one of their own so they can go where we couldn't go. So it's kind of like a gateway into the Muslim, right. Muslim world.
0: Right, which Pretty is, cool. yeah, that, I'm glad you said that because one of the reasons that, that this got me so excited when, when, I, when I started talking to these guys about this um, is I want, you know, I think God's heart for our church is that we would be a church that is globally invested, uh, globally minded. Um, and, and, and like we've talked about like this aircraft carrier idea, you know, that we really are ascending point, ascending place. Um, but, but if we're the only aircraft carrier, I think that that's kind of short-sighted. So the, the goal would be to say we want an aircraft carrier in Albania, and it sounds like God is planting churches through this missions organization, or through this church planting organization. How many has been planted already? Four or five? Correct? Through? Four. Four. Okay, so four churches planted already there. You know, um, can we create a beachhead in partnership, you know, with them, as well as Uganda, which you're going to hear about soon, um, some of the stuff that some people in our church are doing in, in Uganda. Like, I would love to say, man, we have an aircraft carrier in Uganda. We have an aircraft carrier in Eastern Europe, um, and we are just, like, sending people, sending resources is, um, and, and in partnership with these guys, like just I just think that, that that's so exciting to me, to think about what could, we could be doing missionally, globally, um, not just in Grant's Pass, but even to the ends of the earth, and the fact that you guys have already been there, that you're already excited, that you have relationships, that you're going back. When you guys were already going back, and I just said, oh, cool, can we come? Um, so my wife and I are probably going to go this summer because we want to scope it out and be able to really put full force behind it and say, hey, we want to bring teams and go back and do work there, so um, that's kind of the hope, that's kind of the goal, and We'll be kind of investigating, you know, and and, check, and checking it out. But um, how can we support you guys? So I'll say the part that you want. Um, we need to support these guys financially. It's expensive um, to go and and. and, and it's not like they're going on a pleasure cruise in Europe. Okay, this is the poorest country um, in Europe. They won't let them into the European Union. Um, there's, they're really, it is a poor country, and, and it is uncomfortable. It is missions work, um, and it is expensive to go over. So um, the church has made some, some some support to these guys already. But I'm inviting you guys as well to to consider financially um, supporting as these guys are raising funds. Um, you're going in, in spring, yeah. correct? Yes. Um, you're going in, in summer, um, and so I've put the information up here for you guys to be able to, to go on um, and check out their, their GoFundMe, check out their, um, their sites um, and see. And you have had some videos that you made. Those are on your website, I would imagine, from your trips. Um, but how else can we, aside from the financial element, um, which I'm really hoping that we can just raise that money for you guys um, as a church, as a church family um, right away, but aside from that, what, what else can we do to support you guys um, in particular as you're going out on this work?
1: So um, one thing that I'm praying the most about is um, just kind of she alluded to this there's a, there's just a harvest there um, they need more laborers to just disciple people so it's very evangelistic like one of the things we'll do during the summer is very evangelistic and people are responding they're very open to the gospel uh, but not as many people to just be right there with them and live with them so the cry of the the ministry there Illyricum movement is that disciplers would come so um so so my prayer is that even though you know it doesn't seem as though god's going to will for us to be more long term but i think what what our role at this point is to you know basically encourage and ask you to pray uh and spread the word too that's another thing just spread the word about the fact that um albania it really is a launch pad for the gospel for sending missionaries to the muslim surrounding areas um so spread the word about that uh but my prayer would be that that someone maybe even from this church or somebody from grants pass would be long-term there uh so that's
0: yeah and that would be that would be a key you know god could bring that to have kind of a you know really connection there so um Can I also, yeah uh, please just
2: besides supporting us or abby uh um, for this trip, Illyricum movement has their own, and you can support them directly okay. on their website, Great. because they're you know continuously trying to plant new churches, and Eddie, the pastor who we, met, who we have right. a relationship with there, he's got plans to yeah. start a couple of new churches that he's talking about. and so yeah. it's not just us, it's that whole Illyricum mm-hmm. movement. and uh, so cool.:
1: So if you when you go to emmel um there's a partners page, and you can go to their website from that. Cool.
0: All right. So we're going to mob you guys with uh, prayer, and then afterwards, we're going to mob them with questions. So if you guys have questions, you brought some letters, right? So you're, yes. you're kind of your letter that explains a little bit more, um, kind of a fundraising letter. So wherever those are at, you know, you can come get one um, from Abby. But I encourage you guys to jot that down. Check out their info. Let's support these guys. Let's pray for them. We will absolutely be having kind of a, um, what would you call it, like a follow-up, you know, when you guys, when you guys get back and, and hear about what God's doing. And, um Maybe you could FaceTime in you know, halfway through your trip and tell us how it's going over there. So, um, so would you guys just extend a hand to these guys and let's just pray. Uh, Father, we just thank you so much that we have people in our church family that um, are excited about bringing the gospel to the nations. Lord, um, we thank you that we have brothers and sisters all over the world that are part of your kingdom. And and Lord, we just desire to see the gospel be spread. We desire to see your name be made famous, Christ. And and if, Lord, you could use us just to support these guys and what they are feeling called to do, Lord, we just want to be brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and come around these guys. we just pray for them. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would empower them. We know the enemy always combats um, the work of the kingdom. So we just pray, Lord, protection, even in the, in the, the time leading up as preparations are made and tickets are purchased and fundraising happens we'll just watch over every part of that um. God, we pray for just great reports. We pray for great breakthrough and discipleship with Abby. She's just working with the gals there for six months. And we pray for kids to come to Christ and lead their parents to come to church and come to Christ and more churches to be planted. And just this little country that is struggling, Lord. We just pray for them to be, um, just to explode, um, Lord, with the gospel. Uh, Father, they would find their identity in who you are in Christ, Lord, not their identity on what they are nationally or in the global scene, Lord. Um, so God, just empower these guys. Thank you for them, Lord. We love them, and we send them, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.